0: The rest of you can turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. If you have a Bible with you, that would be the place to turn. And we're going to continue our study in this book, this practical book, as it uh, speaks to us on a very basic level about the authenticity of our faith. That's what this book is. It is a collection of tests of authenticity. So if you've ever wondered whether or not you truly know Christ, whether, you, whether your relationship with him is genuine or not, then uh, this is a wonderful book for you to consider. The lessons of this book are clear. Um, the lessons of this book are practical. Not only are the tests of authentic faith in the book of James ways to examine the genuineness of our relationship with God, but they also double as lures, if you would, to attract us into a deeper, more meaningful walk with Christ. And I know that if you truly do know Christ, that is a desire of your heart, that you want to become more like Christ. You want to walk more closely with him. And so this is the ideal book for you at this time in your life. God has you here for a reason, uh, to not only examine your faith, but to strengthen it. And so with excitement, we come now to this next section that we're going to be considering. um, The first chapter of James, verses 19 through 27. Uh, If you consider the the tests of faith um, and realize that they're they're not just tests of faith, but also um, lures to or enticement to a deeper walk with Christ, just consider the first test which was found in verses two through 12 of chapter one. It's a test of trials, remember that? We talked about that for a while. Uh, We've been studying this book of James now since September, and today we'll come to the end of chapter one, but the first test that we came across was found in in verses two through 12, and it was the test of trials. Our response to trials, as we learned, uh, indicate the authenticity of our faith. So how is how is your responses to the trials you face? Uh, are they joyful? If so, then that's a good indication that you understand the point of trials and trust God that that He has uh, a purpose for you in those trials; that uh, He has the, you there for a reason, primarily to strengthen your faith. If, on the other hand, you grumble and complain and chafe against the trials that you face, then It reveals either an absence of genuine faith or at least a lack of understanding of how God makes you more Christ-like. Have you ever considered this, that you only become more like Christ in trial and not in ease? Have you come to that, that discovery yet in the Christian life? And it's amazing how even though after we've discovered that, that we still run from trial every chance we get. I think it's just a natural reaction. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6-7, Peter says this very thing. He says the trials are designed by God to test the authenticity of our faith, but trials are also used by God to strengthen our faith. If faith is untried, it may be true. No one can really know, but it could be true. But it's certainly weak faith, and likely to remain weak as long as it's without trials. Faith only develops under stress. Storms train and strengthen our faith like windy storms strengthen trees. I'm reading a historical uh, fiction book called The Island of the Lost, and it's placed or set in the 1800s in the Auckland Islands near New Zealand, where there have been many shipwrecks. One of the most frustrating things to sailors in that area was calm sea, because in the midst of calm sea, uh, ships didn't move. They needed wind, they needed storm to make progress through these seas to their hopeful harbor. Charles Spurgeon says it like this, on a slumbering ocean, the keel sleeps as well. Let the winds rush howling forth and let the waters lift up themselves then Though the vessel may rock, her deck may be washed with waves, and her mast creak under the pressure of the full and swelling sail, it is then that she makes headway toward her desired haven. Like you and me in the spiritual life, not until we experience difficulty, hardship, and opposition do we actually make movement towards Christ-likeness. So, there we have purpose behind our trials. It's the same with each one of these uh, tests of faith all throughout the book of James. Not only do they expose the authenticity of your faith, but they woo you, they draw you, they they encourage your direction towards Christ. This This is a wonderful truth that we've come to understand. Now we have three tests that we've looked at. The first is your view of trials. The second, your view of God. We saw that in uh, verses 12 through 15 or 12 through 18 and then now we're in the middle of the third test of authentic faith your view of the Word of God what is your view of the Word of God there's five parts to this test Um, we've covered three we'll cover the final two today but let me read for you again uh, James chapter 1 verses 19 through 27 where we find this particular test In their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, there we have the third test of authentic faith, your view of the Word. And if you'll remember, let me do a little review for you. Uh, this in- includes five things, three of which we've covered. Do you receive the Word of God humbly? That's what we see here in verses 19 through 21. Are you quick to the hearing of the Word of God? Are you quick to go and find yourself at the outlets of the Word of God? Where is the Word of God being preached, taught? Are you reading it for yourself? Are you quick to the hearing of the Word of God? If you're receiving the Word humbly, you're quick to the hearing. You're slow to the speaking of it. You don't just babble off the first thing that comes to mind when you're talking about the Word of God in some environments. And then you're slow to become angry. That is, you're you're slow to resist and to reject the Word when it is taught, when it is preached. And so the, the third test of authentic faith is how do you receive the word of God? Five parts. The first is, do you receive the word with humility? The second is, do you receive it with purity? Or do you continue to live in an impure life, not really concerned about the de- details of your life that aren't pleasing to God? You know, because if, you, if you've been here, you know at least. We've talked about this. Impurity is a... a And an impediment to spiritual growth. So if you have some impurity in your life, guess what? It's going to block spiritual growth in your life. And so a person who is uh, passing the test of of receiving of the word is uh, willing and anxious to rid themselves of impurity. The third thing we covered a couple weeks ago, uh, the the third part of this test is receiving the, the word of God with obedience. Being a doer. Not just a hearer, but a doer of the word. When you hear it preached, when you, when you study it and you see it for yourself, do you do it or do you ignore it? A person who, who passes the, the test of authentic faith receives the word of God with obedience. Now we're going to conclude this particular test of authentic faith this morning by looking at verses 26 and 27. We're going to see two more parts of this test. The first is this, receiving the word of God with action. Verse 26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person' religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So there the first thing we see is this. There is action involved. Uh, if anyone thinks he is religious, James begins this particular verse. James wants you to think about the religious activity in your life. So let's do that. Think about the religious activity in your life. If you could write down a list of religious things you do, what would they be? What would that list include? It would obviously include being here on Sunday morning, right? Well, James wants you to consider that. Do you attend church? Do you pray? Do you have your devotional time? Maybe you even fast. James is saying here, and listen closely, that those things don't necessarily confirm one's faith because they're external. Sleeping in the garage doesn't make you a car either. (laughs) Any more than coming to church makes you a Christian. Being outwardly pious is not the telltale sign of true religion. This is the very same struggle that the Pharisees had in Jesus' day, you remember? Externally, they were flawless. They, they crossed all their T's and dotted all their I's. They had everything in place. And yet, what was Jesus' opinion of the Pharisees? Less than good. James has talked about the importance of being a doer of the word and not being deceived by just being a hearer. It's so easy to deceive yourself into believing that you are something that you're not simply because you're hearing the word of God. Uh, are you a Christian? Yes, I go to church. You know, we, we, we hear that occasionally from people, maybe even from people like you and me. Now, James takes another important step in helping us determine whether or not our faith is authentic. Look at what he states in verses 26 and 27. He says that we can also deceive ourselves not only in hearing and not doing, but we can deceive ourselves in the doing. Now, this is intriguing. We can even deceive ourselves by doing religious things. We can fool ourselves into believing that our faith is real because we have a list of religious things that we do. And if someone were to ask you about your faith, that's the first response. I go to church, I give, I serve. That's how I know I'm a Christian. Might be a natural response of ours. Having the right vocabulary, having the right behavior, being accepted in this group of Christians. We worship the right way. James is asking us to think a little more deeply about this. He uses a word for religious in verse 26 that refers to religious rituals, religious routines, religious ceremonies. In the first century, there was a historian named Josephus. He used this identical word to describe Jewish ceremony in the temple. All right, so what was Jewish ceremony in the temple like if it wasn't ritualistic? It was ritualistic. They dotted their T's. They, they actually, they dotted their I's and crossed their T's. <laughs> I wouldn't have made a good priest, obviously. But see, this is what James is getting after. Having all these right religious things in place, James is saying, doesn't guarantee authentic faith. Those are just religious things. They're external. According to verse 22, look at that with me if you would, verse 22 if you're a hearer who doesn't do, then you're deceived, right? Isn't that what that verse says, verse 22? Look at verse 26. If you're a heartless doer, you're also deceived. You see that? James is making it harder and harder to be an authentic Christian. This is the third time, in fact, that James has warned us about self-deception. Verse 16, verse 22, and now Verse 26. Going through the motions of doing isn't any more affirming of authentic faith than just hearing and not doing. It's the same in James' mind. If you're deceived, you don't know that you're deceived. That's what it means to be deceived. So James simply comes out, in case we're deceived, and tells us this. Verse 26, if you aren't heartily obeying the word of God, you are deceived about your faith heartily obeying you may actually think you're doing well when in fact you're deceived and in spiritual toil spiritual peril spiritual danger in case that's the case James lays out very clearly here in 26 and 27 what true religion really is so let's look at it together he addresses three categories if you'll notice in verses 26 and 27 from Scripture, by the way, these are not new to James. He, he addresses three categories from Scripture, scripture that reveal the authentic faith. Receiving the word with action begins with what in verse 26? A bridal tongue. Being able to control your tongue is the first thing he says. Now James is starting to meddle, right? He's starting to get into our business. Mind your own business might be an answer that we would give to James. But this is, in fact, from the Spirit of God and important for us to consider. James makes an an incredible and penetrating statement to all of us who think that we are Christians. It's not what you can say about religious things. It's not about checking off boxes. It's not about how much you know or can pontificate or elaborate or explicate. It's about how you can keep your tongue in check. How simple is this? At least the test is simple. Can you keep your tongue in check? If you have not been genuinely regenerated, if you've not had a genuine encounter with God, sooner or later, your corrupt heart will be exposed by your corrupt tongue. Jesus evidently thought a little bit about this himself. and I suspect that Matthew, I mean that James was listening to Jesus when he was saying these things in Matthew 12. Listen, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. You see, Jesus is saying, James is saying, the tongue will always expose the heart. Every time. That which is inside, the tongue will bring to the surface. I heard a story of a young man uh, who, every time he drank alcohol, became very explicit in his conversation, in his language. And his friends would pass it off and say, ah, that that was the alcohol speaking. The question was, is that the alcohol speaking? Or is that his heart speaking? I I surmise that alcohol gave his heart the freedom it's always wanted. To say what is actually in the heart. You see, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The metaphor of the bridle here in verse 26, I think, is powerful and makes clear the danger, doesn't it? The out-of-control tongue, like the out-of-control horse, is disaster. The out-of-control tongue exposes illegitimate faith. And the thing that you need to keep in mind as we look through these, these tests of faith... James isn't trying to make us feel bad. He's not trying to make his, his first um, readers feel guilty. His first readers were his flock. He was their pastor. He cared deeply for the spiritual well-being of their soul. He cared for their joy. And so he wanted to share things with them that were of utmost importance, not just to get them, not just to make them feel bad. No, because these things are more important than anything in life, and so he brings them up. He is a pastor at heart, saying, Now listen, friends, uh, just because you come to church, just because you pray, just because you give and serve, if the tongue is habitually out of control, we need to take a step back and consider things a little more deeply. He didn't want his congregants to be or to experience. Worthless religion. So the question I ask you as your pastor is this. Does your tongue become unbridled? Does your tongue become unbridled for any reason? For frustration or anger? And you'll say, yeah, it's because I was frustrated and angry. And I would say, really? Or is it because of your heart? You know, a lot of times we like to blame outbursts on circumstances, don't we? Well, I had a headache. Well, I had worked all day. I was tired. Well, you didn't do this or didn't say that. Or It's never my heart, right? It's always the circumstances. And I was just responding. Well, James is saying, maybe we should think about this a little bit more. Paul said in Ephesians 4, guard against unwholesome talk. Speaking to Christians, in the same chapter, verse 25, he said to abstain from lying. Paul told the Corinthians in, in 2 Corinthians 12.20 uh, that a Christian that's given to quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, these things that come out of the mouth is not appropriate. This is, this is what James is talking about here. Even though it includes all these this large category of an unbridled tongue, I think James' focus here, if we could focus in based on the the context here, it would be the the kind of tongue that's judgmental, critical, and argumentative, I think is James' primary focus. The person who is only outwardly religious, whose faith is counterfeit, is able, most likely, to, to avoid filthy talk, to avoid lying, But James is saying one thing that the unconverted heart or the corrupt tongue can't escape is a critical and judgmental comment. That's that's where they're given away. John Calvin wrote this in his commentary concerning these things. When people shed their grosser sins, they are extremely vulnerable. A man will steer clear of adultery, of stealing, of drunkenness. In fact, he will be a shining light of outward religious observance, and yet will revel in destroying the character of others under the pretext of zeal, mind you. But it is a lust for vilification. This explains the bloated pharisaical pride that feeds indulgently on a general diet of smear and censure. You See how serious this is, Christian friend. Now, as I've said before, James isn't saying that those who occasionally fall into this sin have worthless religion, have inauthentic faith, because that would include all of us, right? Who hasn't slipped of tongue? James is saying that if your tongue is habitually unbridled, even if all the other boxes are checked, the authenticity of your faith is in question. So true religion controls the tongue. So if we're going to receive the word of God with action, first it will result in a controlled tongue. Secondly, we'll see here in verse 27a, it results in care of the less fortunate. Do you see that? James gives a positive description of what true religion is. He says, according to the verse, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. In the first century, of course, orphans and widows had to fend for themselves. They had it tough. There was no welfare There was no foster care. No one would look after them. They needed the basics, food, shelter, clothing, etc. In our day, there are others who fall into this same category. Besides widows and foster care, there are homeless, the unborn, the financially less fortunate, among others. If James were writing to us, he would include those in this sentence. James is saying that if you have no concern and care for people in these categories, your religion... As shiny as it may appear on the outside, really is worthless and inauthentic. I hope you I hope you sense the, the gravity of what James is saying. We we can come to church regularly, can take in the Word of God and joyfully sing worship songs. We can even take notes during the sermon. I mean, if that doesn't prove you're a Christian, right? We can give, even sacrificially, have our daily devotions. We can have the right language, be perfect in our worship, and all this could be true, and yet, James is saying, hold on, you can be deceived in your doing. This was not a comfortable thing for me to study, by the way, because I am a doer of doers. I love doing, doing what makes me tick. And here James is saying, so? So what? You're a doer. Where's your heart when you're doing? By the way, this isn't the first time this comes up in Scripture. Uh, it's all over the place in the Old Testament. I'm going to share with you one, but let me start by reading something from the Apostle John. Just so we know that James isn't out to lunch. 1 John 3, 16-18. By this we know love And by the way, what is it that Jesus said describes believers? Love, right? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, it doesn't. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, Let's go back to the Old Testament, where much of this is established. I'm going to read a quote from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. And I want you to notice this is God speaking about religious practices, about what we do here every Sunday. This is what God is talking about in Isaiah chapter 1. What to me, God says, is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. This is religious practice. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I can't endure iniquity and in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen your hands are full of blood, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Talk about a gut punch to Christians. True religion, friends, is bringing justice to the fatherless and pleading the cause of widows and all that are in that category. That's true religion. Not just giving money to them to assuage the guilt feelings. Not just writing a check to the UGM. It's personally going to Othello on December 15th. It is personally participating in our Camp Hope Christmas Eve service. We don't need your money, we need your hands, is what James is saying. In what I'm saying, we want Christians with dirty hands. These are examples of being doers of the word. James does not give in verse 27 a precise definition intentionally, he gives a principle. And we can tell he's talking principle when he brings in God the Father. He introduces a family concept. We are God's children because he's our father, right? And since he's our father, he expects us to live as his children should. And how should his children live? Here's the directions. This is how children should live. This is how God's children should live. Those who are in his family live. And if we love God, then we will love what he loves, if we value our relationship with God, we will value what He loves. The love God and love other commands that we see all over Scripture require us to watch out for and minister to the less fortunate, because that's what God does and did. God set the example for this kind of behavior, this kind of passion, this kind of heart. Look at Psalm 146. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He doesn't tell you to go watch over the sojourners. He does it. And if you have His heart, you'll do it. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Look at Deuteronomy 10 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving them food and clothing. He does it. He expects and requires us, His children, to follow His example. And so the person who exhibits true religion is one who visits orphans and widows in their distress and not just sitting down for a chat. Are you one of God's children? If so, you will possess his heart. James is not speaking of what may seem to be best to us or best to the world or even best to fellow Christians, but what is best in God's sight back to the verse verse 27 religion that is pure and undefiled that word before god the father could be rendered according to god the father religion that is pure and undefiled according to god is this not according to the religious journal or cnn or such and such a church according to god and by the way he gets to establish what the standard is when it comes to true religion The authenticity of our faith is not determined by our sincerity of our religious practices. I am in no doubt of 99% of your seriousness here. But that doesn't matter at all. My sincerity, your sincerity does not matter. What matters is God's standard in this discussion. And the contrast between these two things is significant because God is the one who gets to decide what makes a person right with him, what is true religion and what isn't. As good as it makes us feel that we are faithful in church attendance and sacrificial in giving and all the other things that I've mentioned, The reality is controlling the tongue and watching out for the needy are actually the only things that reveal authentic faith in the life of a believer. The word, to keep, in the middle of verse 27, like I said, means more than just to drop by for a chat. To keep is much more than that. It carries, or to visit rather, I'm sorry, to visit orphans. That word is much more than just dropping by for a chat. It carries the idea of caring for others, exercising oversight on their behalf, helping them in their need. In fact, the original language, this word is used frequently in the New Testament about God ministering to his people. And it's, by the way, also the root word that's used to describe elders in a church. Episcopos. Overseers, lovers of the of the flock, that's what that word is to visit. This is a description of people with authentic faith. We care about the needy people in our lives. True Christianity is manifested by the way we talk, controlling our tongue, and by the way we act, loving indeed. Now let's look at the. The final part of five parts of this particular test of authentic faith. Receiving of the word. Do you receive the word with action that I've just discovered, that I just described? Finally, do you receive the word with conviction? Conviction. Look at the second half of verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled is this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's the final part of this particular test. Keep oneself unstained speaks of a conviction that comes from a word-saturated mind. You know the word, you know the truth of it, you know the expectations of it, and you do it. The warning about the world is, is a common theme that runs throughout the New Testament. Jesus spoke of it, Peter spoke of it, John spoke of it, James spoke of it, Paul spoke of it. But here James introduces a subject um, that we'll get into much more detail in, in chapter four. But the one who possesses authentic faith will receive the Word in such a way that it results in separation from this, this polluting world. It results in purity, this conviction does. And if there's anything true of our society, it's that it's stained by sin. Would you agree? I think that's pretty clear. It's polluted. Unfortunately, I think the church at large has tried to diminish the stark contrast between the world and the believer in order to ease the conscience of the believer when we've blurred the lines there. This is, I think, very unfortunate. We've bought into, as a church at large, much of what the world is selling. I think our rating system in the evangelical world mirrors the world's rating system with maybe a tick or two delay. Wouldn't you say? Uh, how do you determine what you'll wear? How do you determine what you'll watch? How do you determine your entertainment choices? Well, the world's out there. That's bad. So I got to be a little bit back from them. Is that how we do it? Or is it? Here's God's standard. Here's the plumb line of God's word. That's the standard. You see, God has called us out of the world, so our first order of duty is to keep ourselves unstained from the world from which he's called us. The Bible tells us that we were once dead in sin, but have been made alive in Christ. We were once in darkness, but have been brought into Christ's marvelous light. We were once far off, but have been brought near by Jesus Christ. We have been redeemed from the futile way of life by the precious blood of Christ and given an eternal inheritance that doesn't spoil or fade. You remember hearing those things from Scripture? If that is true, if the things I've just mentioned are true, then separation from the world is a new but natural bent for everyone who has a new heart. If God has transplanted a new heart in your soul, removed the heart of stone, placed in a heart of flesh, then your new interest Will be evident. You, you will desire separation from anything that would soil your heart and soul. We will have new affections, we'll have new interests, new inclination. Our old heart was crucified to the world and the world to us. God uses sanctification, I think, this becoming like Jesus to drive a divine wedge between us and the world that's ever widening. I hope you can sense this in your Christian life, that the longer you walk with Jesus, the wider the chasm becomes between you and and the world, between your Savior and the world. But being in the world, but not of the world, is a sensitive balance to find, isn't it? We all live here, and we can't just do what the middle century monks did and disappear into the mountains for the rest of our lives. We actually have to function here. So how do we strike that balance? Being in the world but not of it. Being involved but not soiled by the world. James 4 says don't be friends with the worldly system at all. But what did Jesus say? He says be involved in the world so that you can preach the gospel. So somehow or another, we've got to be in there and not get soiled. We've got to roll around in the pig pen and not get dirty. That's tricky, isn't it? We need to pray for wisdom, first and foremost. But as your pastor, I have another idea for you also that might be helpful. It's in the form of an acrostic. Do you like acrostics? Okay, I'll share one with you. Uh, or an acronym, whatever it is you call it. Uh, and it just so happens to be the word pure, P-U-R-E. You want to know how to be in the world but not of it? You know how to wrestle pigs and not get dirty? Listen. Ask yourself, will what I'm about to do please Christ? P. Will it please Christ? By the way, you can get involved in a lot of worldly things that please Christ. Right? Will it please Christ? You. Will it urge spiritual growth? Will what you do urge spiritual growth? Will it make you more like Jesus, in other words? This thing. R. Will it reflect the gospel? Will there be a question about your understanding of the gospel if you participate? in whatever it is? Will you be able to experience that grace-driven, mission-minded gospel in your decision? And then finally, E, will it encourage my friends and family to follow Christ more closely? I know this doesn't cover everything, but it's helpful at least at some level. Think about these things. Is it pure? Will it please Christ? Will it urge spiritual growth? Will it reflect the gospel? Would it encourage my friends and family to walk more closely with Christ? Friends, we need to be in the world, but not of it. The next thing we see here in this uh, final point receiving the word with conviction not only results in purity, that results in consistency, consistency. To keep that's where I was talking that was what I was talking about earlier. to keep there in verse 27, in the original language indicates a continuous ongoing action. a never-ending ongoing action. hence the idea of consistency. This means that it is not a hot and cold condition of the heart, it isn't the on again, off again faith that runs out of the church with their hair on fire after the worship service only to find themselves on Monday in the depressing dungeon of sin, week in and week out, never changing this habitual practice. No, there's some consistency involved, there's a pattern involved in a battle against the sinful encroachment of the heart And it's characterized by a consistent pursuit of moral and spiritual purity. And again, let me say this again for the second time in this service, uh, and maybe the tenth time through the book of James, the New Testament doesn't speak of sinless perfection, but of trajectory. All right? Even Paul was guilty of sin and struggling with sin. All of us are guilty of sin and struggling with sin. None of us love God or man as we should or show compassion to the needy as we should. James is talking about a trajectory of life. He's talking about an underlying commitment and a love for Christ and a desire to please him. Do we value what God values? Do we value who God values? That's the question James wants us to struggle with. It is not our perfection, to say it again, That proves our salvation, but rather the hating of our imperfection and the striving against it is what proves our true affection for God. In his inmost heart, the the genuine Christian longs to speak and do those things that are holy, pure, loving, honest, truthful, upright. Those things that are uncorrupted and unstained by the world. Is that your heart? I'm not asking if you perfectly pulled that off. I'm asking you if this is your heart. And you know your heart better than anyone in this room. Other than the spirit of God. But what is your heart? Charles Spurgeon said charity and purity are the two great garments of Christianity. And without disrespecting Charles, uh, I'll add... We have a third garment, and it's a hat. The tongue is the hat of Christianity. If charity and purity are the two great garments of Christianity, then the hat is the tongue of Christianity. It's the first thing that people will recognize about you is what's coming out of your mouth. Is it kind? Is it gentle? Is it uplifting? Or is it bitter and divisive and gossipy? So, the third test we have completed. I hope you've used this as an opportunity to examine your own soul. How do you receive the word of God, professor, Christian professor? Do you receive it with humility, being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? Do you receive it with purity, fighting against the encroachment of sin so it doesn't impede the Spirit's work in your heart through the word? Do you receive the word of God in obedience? How about with action? Do you, do, you, do you attempt to control your tongue? Do you bridle your tongue? Or does it more often than not get away from you? And do you minister to and love the less fortunate? And then finally, do you receive the word with conviction? Does it, does it actually... Is it actually a a controller of your heart and soul, your conduct, your being? You know, friends, you may have in the past weeks or months that we've been covering the first chapter of James and these three tests of authentic faith, you may have come to the conclusion that you may not know Christ. And let me say something to you. To come to that conclusion is good news. <laughs> because now you know your need. You're no longer deceived. It's the deceived person that we're concerned with. The person who acknowledges their need immediately is the one who can actually receive help from God. Jesus said, all who come to me I will no wise cast out. If you come, I'll take you in. Come humbly. Come repenting. Come embracing the promise of forgiveness in Christ. There is hope for sinners. Our Savior is a friend of sinners. You've heard that a few times. Maybe you're someone here who, who realizes, no, I, I believe that I'm saved, but no, I haven't really been all that uh, you know, committed to or serious about this particular aspect of my faith. I've been a little bit too lackadaisical, if you will, in my relationship with Christ. Here is another opportunity for you to also make that correct, make that right with a simple prayer of repentance. You're always only one prayer away from being right with God, whether you don't know Christ or whether you do. You're one prayer away from being right with Christ, being right with God. So the Holy Spirit has given us opportunity here in James chapter 1 to know him to make sure we know him and to walk more closely with him let's pray God with so many people in this room there's no doubt one or two who maybe have realized through the preaching and teaching of your word and and the influence of the Holy Spirit that they do not know Jesus, that their faith is not authentic. God, I pray for them right now. I pray that in your mercy and by the power of your spirit you will take the word of God and impact their soul. We believe that it is through the hearing of the word that faith is birthed. And so we ask that in your mercy, God, through the power of the Spirit, you would birth new life in those, for those in this room who have never had an authentic faith. And I pray that you would do that now. If you are one of those people, friends, I ask that you would simply pray right now to God, the lover of, of sinners, for mercy and for grace and for pardon of sin that you would lean totally on Christ, God's solution for your sin, and acknowledge your need humbly and embrace him. If you are a Christian in this room who has just um, been not all that concerned about your walk with Christ, but have realized recently because of these wonderful truths in the book of James of your need to to shore up your faith and to be a little more serious about it then I I, I ask you to go to the same savior. For the one who knows that we are but dust, the one who knows our weakness and weaknesses and failures and ailments. Go to this savior who's promised never to cast you out. This the savior who's never who's promised to never leave you or forsake you, who's promised to complete the work he started in you. Go to that savior. And embrace him once again, humbly acknowledging your drifting and pleading his mercy and grace as we all need. God, do this work in us for your glory and for our our eternal good, for our joy today and tomorrow and every day. God, do this work in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.